Hi, my name is Chris Brennan, and you're listening to the Astrology Podcast. Today is Tuesday, October 1st, 2019, starting at 9.09 p.m. in Denver, Colorado, and this is the 226th episode of the show. In this episode, I'm going to be talking with astrologer Nate Craddock about whether astrology is antithetical to Christianity. For more information about how to subscribe to the podcast and help support the production of future episodes of the show by becoming a patron, please visit theastrologypodcast.com slash subscribe. Uh, Hey, Nate, thanks for joining me today. Hey, Chris. Thanks so much for having me on. It's a real honor. Yeah, I'm excited to have you on. I've been wanting to, and we've been talking about it since last November, and then that accelerated a little bit. Um, I think it was in May after I released an episode where I discussed Christianity and possibly the role that astrology played in, in contributing to the rise of Christianity due to some views, views connected with fate in the Roman Empire around the first and second century. Mm-hmm. And that's sparked a discussion. And you had some thoughts about that. So now we're finally getting together to to talk about it a little bit. Maybe we should start a little bit by introducing you for those who aren't familiar with your background and just talk about what your background is in astrology and, and other things in general. Sure, sure, absolutely. Uh, just to, so to give you some context for where I'm coming from in this conversation, I'm a traditional astrologer. I specialize in classical horary technique, a student of the School for Traditional Astrology. As well, I am an ordained Christian priest, and I serve a congregation of the United Church of Christ, which is a progressive mainline Protestant denomination. I have a degree in divinity, uh, which involves study of classical languages, Greek, Latin, Hebrew. And I've been practicing professionally since late 2017, but astrology has always been an interest of mine, um, and it has taken no small amount of effort and mental gymnastics and and self-knowledge to come to a place where I am able to hold both my Christianity and my astrology with a sense of authenticity. Of course, that's complicated as well <laughs> by virtue of the fact that I'm also gay, so I've got like two strikes against me uh, in most traditional Christian circles already. Right. Uh, <laughs> so I, you know, I, I am very excited to share and and to speak about uh, you know th- this confluence of things that are very important to me in my life brilliant yeah mm-hmm. um i think that's perfect background in terms of you know having to not having to but certainly being aware of and understanding the the pros and cons and the different sides of some of these arguments because i know a lot of people have you know questions about that especially christians mm-hmm. or yeah. Yeah. Um, and also, especially if you don't have background in like the history and some of those things, it can be even more difficult to deal with. And sometimes you have to rely on specialists or what have you. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, um, in terms of my background, if anyone's coming into this episode without knowing who I am or having listened to the podcast before, my primary background is in ancient astrology. And I wrote a book titled Hellenistic Astrology The Study of Fate and Fortune, which studies the emergence of Western astrology in the Greco Roman world. Uh, especially around the first century BC through the seventh century CE, and so I'm primarily uh, I'm also a practicing astrologer, but I'm primarily approaching this from the perspective of sort of Western astrology and Christianity sort of coming out of the same social background and some of the interactions that they had in the in the Roman world during that time frame. All right, so. Like I said earlier, um, I've had a couple of discussions about this in the in the past in the podcast. For example, episode forty nine of the Astrology Podcast was with Samuel Reynolds, 
and we talked about some responses to religious criticisms of astrology. So we've touched on some of this, um, and my goal is not to completely repeat a lot of the things that we went through in that episode, and I don't think we're going to, but instead approach this a little bit more from a historical standpoint about some of these debates in the ancient world and sort of the origins of Christianity and the origins of Western astrology. And like I said, the topic came up previously in episode 205 of the Astrology Podcast, which is on the master of the nativity and the overall ruler of the chart. And part of what I talked about during that episode, I think, that sparked this discussion between you and I, Nate, was Mm -hmm. just this realization, this growing realization that I had over the course of the past decade that uh, astrology became so popular in the ancient world and everybody believed that astrology, for the most part, everybody believed or the majority of people believed that astrology was a legitimate phenomenon. And they also, there was a heavy belief and astrology was very intertwined with the concept of fate and predetermination and the idea that astrology would tell you something about your fate and about your future. And in some versions of astrology, it was much more deterministic than it is today in the late 20th or early 21st century, so that it, things were viewed as much more deterministic or much more fixed when you're looking at your life through the lens of astrology. And I feel like that's mm-hmm. maybe true to some extent of traditional astrology as well. Would you say that's like an accurate statement, or is that maybe overstating the point? I think they would overstate astrology of the Middle Ages and the Renaissance. Um, mm-hmm. I certainly from my research and reading uh, in in that period, it seems like there was a sense that the chart, uh, especially in in terms of charts of questions, but also in nativities as well, it it, it was essentially a representation of the path of least resistance. Um, if you do not do anything, these are what your predilections are. This is what could happen if you don't make any uh, if you don't make any effort <laughs> to avert a possible disaster. Um, but that again, that depends based on the particular writer as far as how much of a hardline determinist they're going to be, which actually gets really interesting when you get into uh, the Protestant Reformation in the sixth, uh, the 16th century, uh, where there is a growing rift between stripes of Protestantism with John Calvin and his successors going very hard in the line of determinism while at the same time repudiating astrology. And you have Mm. Martin Luther and his right-hand man, Philip Melanchthon, who was an astrologer, arguing much more in the direction of more autonomy, more free will, more synergistic participation with God in the the salvation project. So that becomes a really tangled line of inquiry that's not quite so easy to suss out as much as we would probably like it to be. At least, uh, at least in the 15th and 16th centuries, by that point in history, sure, definitely, and and I mean, even in the Hellenistic tradition, there were certainly practices like electional astrology, mm-hmm. um, or even applications of magic to astrology, which sought to uh, make things less deterministic or more mm-hmm. negotiable, and that goes back probably to the Mesopotamian tradition, even with the existence of like propitiation rituals and the idea that there were things that you could do to negate. Or you know, avert your fate, or what have mm-hmm. you. So that certainly existed, but at least in the early Hellenistic tradition, it was also coming out of the backdrop of uh, Stoicism being a very popular philosophy from like the third mm-hmm. century BCE to the first few centuries CE. 
And that was like a, a cosmological view in which everything in the world, everything that would happen in your life was predetermined to happen, you know, at the very least from the moment of birth. And there were certainly some astrologers who held like hardline or extreme Stoic views, like mm-hmm. Manilius, for example, is one of the most famous, or to a lesser extent, Vadius Valens and other mm-hmm. authors like that. So that's certainly and that was, I guess, my main way of approaching this is just realizing that there was a deterministic, a fully deterministic approach to astrology in the Hellenistic period around the time that Christianity arose, and that that may have interacted in some interesting and sort of weird ways that we don't realize today because astrology is so mm-hmm. just not deterministic at this point in time. Right. I think that determinism of any form has become extremely unpopular. <laughs> Uh, just in in general culture, which you know has has certain ramifications. I think the way that we practice astrology today, as people whose practices are informed more by classical uh, philosophy, by the philosophy of antiquity, and the techniques that emerged from that philosophical um, that philosophical period within history. So it's certainly something that those of us who are adjacent to the traditional revival or the revival of traditional astrology in the West. Should maybe spend a little bit of time thinking about closely. And I'm sure that this is something that most people coming into astrology at least spend, you know, 30 minutes on a, on a lonely night thinking about. <laughs> at least I would hope so. Thinking about what specifically again? Uh, thinking about the, 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 the level of determinism that is baked into astrology. Yeah, I mean that because that's always been one of my contentions is that natal astrology, the basic premise of natal astrology to some extent is deterministic because mm-hmm. it the premise is that the alignment of the planets and other celestial bodies at the moment of your birth have something to say about the nature and the course of your life. Right. To put it like right. at the most just simple basic definition, that's always been my basic definition of natal astrology, which I don't think anybody would Argue, but that mm-hmm. definition in of itself almost does imply that there's something perhaps about your future that might be you might have a preview of at the very least from looking yeah. at your birth chart, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. The way that I've come to talk about this, and um, I think of a chart almost like a piece of sheet music, right? Uh, you you give a Bach prelude to three different pianists. And they'll all play the same notes and the same rhythms, but they'll each have a very different interpretation of the piece, and it will sound different and have a different feel based entirely upon the situation, the context in which that piece of music is played. Um, so you give one to a jazz pianist, and you'll get that version. You give another to a classical pianist, you'll get that version. You know, mm-hmm. and I think it's very similar with nativities. You give one person a nativity that has Jupiter in the tenth house and Sagittarius, and they become a Hindu Rishi, and you uh, that they grow up in India, and that's their path. But you give that same chart to somebody who grows up in Italy, they turn into the Pope, right? It's not the same fate, but it is kind of the same theme. It's variations on similar themes. At least that's where I've landed on this one. <laughs> sure. Yeah. I mean, does that? Because I think that was so. What I noticed in my like studies of ancient astrology and like ancient philosophies and religions was mm-hmm. that that seemed to be one of the main um points of dispute between astrology and christianity at least in the ancient world was the issue of fate and the issue of predetermination because theologically the idea of of having like a free will of sort was 
really important in Christianity for different reasons, right? Like why why is that theologically? Well, it depends on the theological stripe you're coming from. Mm-hmm. Um, in some stripes of Reformed theology, humans do not have any say whatsoever in whether they're actually saved or not. Free will is an illusion, and this would be the case so like in the hard- Calvinism. Mm-hmm, exactly. Okay. A hardline Calvinism suggests that God has already decided who will be saved and who will not be saved, and there's nothing you can do about it. Right. <laughs> but that's sort of like a uh, we, sort of not weird, but let's say um, not common view in terms of Christian theology, right? It's not a common view in terms of Christian theology, but it is a view that does become significant in the development of late Renaissance astrology, especially in England, um, because William Lilly, of course, when he's writing, he's very involved in the political and religious climate of England during the 17th century. And the stripe of Christianity that is in power during that time, it skews towards deterministic Calvinism. So that is something that I think enters the picture at a certain point, but I don't think it's the majority opinion of uh, of historic Christianity for sure. Um, historically, Christianity has made a strong case that an individual needs to be able to participate with God in their salvation vis-a-vis the exercise of free will, choosing to um, choosing God. Whatever that means, uh, don't want to get too into specifics or into the weeds here. But yeah, that exercise of free will is important. I think in the classical uh, Christian articulation of how salvation works um, and what the mechanism is. But I don't think that it. Um, I'm I'm not quite ready to say that that in and of itself precludes there being some kind of um, external influence upon a person's life vis-a-vis the nativity or vis-a-vis their their raising, their their situation, their uh, the accidents of life that they have no control over that may or may not bring them to a point where they have the opportunity to exercise that free will. Sure, right. Mm-hmm. Um, I guess it was just so so setting up like the historical chronology, it's like mm-hmm. Hellenistic astrology comes together around sometime around, let's say, the first century BCE as mm-hmm. like a system that's especially focused on natal astrology and especially focused on the idea that you can look at the birth chart and it will tell you things about your fate. And some of the more stoically inclined astrologers like Valens held the opinion that the purpose of astrology was to know your fate ahead of time so that you knew what you had to accept about events in your life that would occur in the future. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's the backdrop in the first century BCE. And then Christianity comes onto this scene in the first century CE and initially starts out as a small religion or a small cult in the Roman Empire, a small monotheistic uh, cult in the Roman Empire within the context of a broader sort of very diverse religious community which is largely like polytheistic uh, in the Roman Empire and then slowly over the course of the next few centuries this um, what initially smart started out as a small religious group or a small cult gets bigger and bigger and bigger until eventually by the fourth century CE it becomes legalized it becomes the official state religion of the Roman Empire and then eventually becomes, the dominant religion in the Roman Empire, and the rest is sort of history. Mm-hmm. Uh, and at some point in that, relatively early on, we start seeing Christian authors 
uh, disputing and attacking astrology. And especially from like the second and third and fourth centuries, a lot of these attacks on astrology are attacks against the idea of determinism or the idea of fatalism mm-hmm. and the idea that astrology is somehow wrapped up in these ideas of fate. And right, so right. it was out of that context that I originally had this question that I've been wondering about over the past few years, which is is Christianity inherently antithetical to astrology because of some of those debates surrounding fate and free will and the importance of free will in Christian theology. Hmm. Yeah. And I and yeah. I realize, you know, after the Hellenistic period, after the fall of the Roman Empire, when Christianity became the dominant religion in the West, that there have been many Christians who've practiced astrology and many ways that astrology and Christianity have been reconciled in different ways and continue to be reconciled and practiced in different ways in modern times. Um, there was just this question that I always had in terms of the origins of Christianity, if there wasn't something there which um, initially set up astrology and Christianity on a problematic footing, even if later perhaps they could be reconciled. Yeah, I, I think you're hitting on a very important point there, Chris, because I think that there is enough evidence to suggest that at at least during the very early stages of the development of a coherent Christian theology, there was a decided tension between it was really more the concept of fate that was the issue. It wasn't necessarily astrology qua astrology, the practice thereof that was the issue. It was mm-hmm. the the thing that astrology was predicated on, right? So, you know, to to kind of move in that direction, let me just begin by saying that the answer to whether Christianity and astrology are antithetical to one another really depends on how you're defining the terms. Who's Christianity? Who's astrology, right? Right. <laughs> so that's where immediately right out of the gate, we have complications in answering this question in any way that's going to be satisfying to somebody who wants me to open the Bible and point to a verse and have that verse say that it's okay to do astrology or that it's not okay to do astrology because sure. there's there's <laughs> there's no solid testimony that you can just take out of context and proof text with to uh, you know give yourself license to be an astrologer or to discriminate against astrology, right? <laughs> right. And especially because so, the Bible itself, like what we call the Bible, was is a collection of different texts that were written mm-hmm. by different people in like different eras, and they have different, sometimes contrasting or sometimes wildly contrasting views mm-hmm. on astrology. Mm-hmm. They have wildly contrasting views on everything. <laughs> okay. You know, they're the Bible is not a single unified volume. There are themes that come up throughout each of the volumes of the Bible or or each of the entries in the biblical canon, but I think you are certainly going to see things that contradict each other, right? And there are some stripes of Christianity which will bend over backwards to try to smooth out all the contradictions I'm not one of those people. Um, sure. And, I mean, I mean, because at the very yeah. least, it's like all Christians would agree that there's at least a distinction between, let's say, like what they call the Old Testament versus the New Testament, and yes. that those are two almost different. I don't know. Like some most denominations sort of treat that as like a part one and part two of the Bible, essentially, right? You could say that. Yeah, um, I I would be comfortable agreeing with that. 
but keep in mind too that for Jewish people, the Old Testament is the Bible. There's no right. New Testament, right? Right. <laughs> so, and we also have to remember that Christianity began as a Jewish cult. For the first Christians, there was no New Testament. Their Bible was the Hebrew Bible, and maybe some of the additional stuff that's in the Septuagint, right? Mm-hmm. So when we're engaging with the biblical narrative, I think we do have to treat the Hebrew Bible or the Old Testament a little bit different than we treat the New Testament, right? And, and I think there are some really interesting things that we get to from either of those that have different angles of approach um, in terms of how we address the question of what is you know what is the relationship between astrology and Christianity, um, and how do we how do we how do we bridge that gap or is there even a possibility of bridging that gap? Sure. Um, yeah. yeah, but I mean, I like it's probably a good starting point because at least chronologically, knowing mm-hmm. that the Old Testament uh, arises out of sort of a, uh, like you said, a Jewish cult that was specifically though in Mesopotamia or in the Middle East mm-hmm. during, let's say, especially the first millennium BCE, mm-hmm. and then. Some of the references to astrology in, in, that occur in the Old Testament that are often the most um, antagonistic or dismissive of astrology mm-hmm. are reacting to uh, what was Mesopotamian astrology essentially at the time, which was right. practiced in like a polytheistic context. And, mm-hmm. and part of the conflict there was um, the conflict with the new sort of monotheism of the this sort of Jewish religion versus the polytheism. That was being practiced in Mesopotamia. Uh, that was like the social context of astrology at that time in the first millennium BCE, right? Right, right. I think what an, there is a really important angle that can easily get lost if we're focusing purely on the theological conflicts that are there, because there's also an economic, a socio-economic conflict as well as a political conflict unfolding. Right. So, history of the Hebrew people. Crash course. <laughs> they start out in in the land of Canaan, right? Eventually, following the events of the Joseph narrative at the end of the book of Genesis, and of course, this is the mythic history of the people of Israel. Uh, they end up in Egypt, right? And things are going great until they end up as slaves in Egypt. Uh, the freedom, the expulsion of the Hyksos, uh, the freedom of the Hebrew people from Egypt is chronicled in the book of Exodus. And baked into the memory of the Hebrew people is their experience of enslavement in Egypt under Pharaoh and his gods, right? So Egypt, of course, is the first empire that uh, Israel has a run-in with. And then they get out of Egypt and they they rumble around uh, the land of Canaan for a little while, um, commit some minor genocide. And eventually become the nation of Israel, the 12 tribes, tribes of Israel and Judah. And the events of the Old Testament, the events of the Israelite monarchy occur. And um, at the end of that period, around, dates are not coming to me quickly right now, but around 780 BCE, um, Jerusalem is sacked by Babylon. And the Israelite people are then taken as prisoners of war to Babylon, right? So this is the second empire that they are now under, right? Of course, both of these empires have, as part of their imperial machinery, their imperial cultic machinery, the use of astrology to support 
political power and to keep money flowing to the top of the pyramid or to the top of the ziggurat, as the case may be. So Cyrus the Great sacks Babylon in 550 CE, becomes the emperor of Persia. The first thing Cyrus the Great does is say, oh, you can go home now. So all the Hebrews go back to Palestine. And there they are until uh, Alexander the Great rolls through, and then all of the Hellenistic uh, rulers and eventually the Roman Empire come through and conquer that area. So at the point in which Christianity emerges, the, the Hebrew people, and remember too that Jesus is Jewish, he's distinctly a Jewish figure in the very uh, early parts of Christianity, they have undergone so many different enslavements and imperial occupations that anything that even smells like Babylon is a byword, right? So things, of course, like astrology are going to meet with really strong polemic uh, in the writings of the Old Testament um, because they are practices that are endemic to conquering and occupying empires, right? Um, Right, because astrology... Maybe it's worth because it, there's like different phases in the history of astrology, and mm-hmm. these two, it's like the Old Testament and the New Testament are being written during very distinct phases in the history of astrology. Where during the period you were just talking about with like Mesopotamian astrology in the first mm-hmm. millennium BCE, it was largely just uh, mundane astrology where it's Correct. being applied to groups of people such as cities and nations. So like. You know, if there's an eclipse, there will be like an earthquake or like mm-hmm. a famine mm-hmm. or a war or plague or the king will die or something like that. Mm-hmm. And astrology is like a state-supported event, especially in the seventh century in Mesopotamia, mm-hmm. seventh century BCE. And it's mainly the king employing groups of astrologers who are living around the country who are both observing the movements of the planets and the stars and other celestial bodies, but also um, writing down and making interpretations about what they think those movements mean, and then sending them to the king directly in order to advise about imperial policy. So that's what you mean when you're talking about astrology being like deeply in- intertwined with the sort of politics of the day in that time period. Exactly, exactly. And the other face of this, of course, is the theological challenge posed by these Babylonian astral deities, right? The planets Inanna and Marduk and so forth. Uh, being Team Babylon, whereas Israel has their god, Yahweh. And it's important to note, too, that in the early development of Judaism, Judaism did not start out as a monotheistic religion. It started out as a henotheist religion, which acknowledged the existence of other gods. So to the to the Israelites who were exiled to Babylon, yes, of course, Inanna and Marduk and all the rest of the gang were real. They just weren't their god. They were foreign gods, right? And so the, the, the tension between Yahweh as the Israelites' deity who has specifically chosen Israel as a covenant community, as a covenant race, uh, to be in this, um, uh, it's known as a suzerain vassal treaty, right? So Yahweh's the boss and, and Israel is the boss's people, right? Um, they set themselves up as being a counterpoint or an alternative to the empire that is ruled by, of course, the king of Babylon and his uh, cortege of deities that accompany him and his people, right? So this becomes very much about maintaining a sense of national identity that's rooted all the way back 
into the uh, the mythic promise that Yahweh made to Abraham, the mythic forefather of the Israelite people, you know, to become a nation through which uh, the entire world would be blessed. Um, so these myths run very, very deep. These stories run very, very deep in the Israelite consciousness. But as they transition out of their Babylonian captivity, the writings of the Old Testament that exist at that point go through this redaction process where they're almost like edited to, to fit their understanding of monotheism a little bit better. And if you you can go and Google the documentary hypothesis if you're interested in doing a deep dive on this, you can see how there are several different layers of text that in some places in the Old Testament refers to Yahweh as being one of many gods. Um, sometimes God refers to God's self in the plural, <laughs> which is really interesting. Um, sometimes, you know, there is a really strong monotheist bent and how different divinities are spoken of as being blind or mute or um, just lifeless matter, you know. Um, but it, I think it all does feed into this growing sense of national identity and national exclusivity in some ways among the Israelites of the post-exilic period. Um, now, where astrology fits into that, uh, in terms of Mesopotamian astrology, again, as I was saying, you know, there's this idea that all of the planets are actual deities that the um, that the Babylonian imperial cult works to propitiate for the benefit of the king, but also everyone the king is in charge of, right? There's also a really interesting dichotomy between the different anthropologies that are represented by the Israelite myth and the Babylonian creation myths, whereas uh, in the Babylonian creation myths, humans are conceived as nothing more but tools to serve the gods, whereas in the Israelite creation myth, humans are construed as um, creations that bear the image of God and participate with God in the administration of the world. So um, Team Israel, Team Yahweh wants to stay over there on their side <laughs> with their understanding of um, who they believe they were created to be uh, and not get caught up in the, uh, or not fall prey to the the star gods of the empire who just want humans to be tools. And I think that there's a strong case for that interpretive uh, trajectory within the Hebrew Bible. Sure. So in the Mesopotamian tradition, the planets were viewed as um, like manifestations of some of the specific gods, basically. That's right. And, yes. And, and capable of sending messages to humankind about the intentions of the gods mm -hmm. so that the purpose of the astrologers was observing what was going on in the sky as being omens or signs that the gods were attempting to send to humankind about their intentions. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That's right. That's right. Okay. So that becomes one then in, in the ancient world in the Mesopotamian period of many different forms of divination um, that were taking place. And divination in that context was also kind of not looked well upon, right? It was not looked well upon as long as it was outside the norms of authorized divination. Uh, one example of which is the practice of urim and tumim, uh, which is essentially a form of cleromancy, where clergy and the uh, and the temple of Yahweh would cast lots to discern the will of God. Right, 
Uh, that is documented right there in the book of Exodus. So divination was baked in to the Israelite tabernacle and later temple cult. However, what made that form of divination licit is that it was done in the name of Yahweh, whereas other forms of divination against which the Yahwistic cult were competing were done in the name and with the authority of other deities. So that gets into that henotheism, monotheism challenge that the Yahwistic cult is presenting or is is grappling with during that period of history. Okay. Yeah. And there's actually an example of like claromancy in the New Testament as well. Mm-hmm. Um, right. At like one point, it's like really yeah. there. And then so, subsequent scholars have like tried to argue about how it's not divination, <laughs> it's something else. Right, but it, it's divination. Right? Yeah, it's like they're casting lot. <laughs> it's like the the apostles or something are casting lots. Mm-hmm. And what was the context again? Like I'm trying to remember. So Judas, after betraying Jesus to the uh, religious leaders for a fee, um, is so distraught by what he's done that he commits suicide. And um, after the the events of the crucifixion really settled down. Uh, the disciples at that point recall uh, a passage from the Hebrew Bible that says, let another take his place, um, which is from the Psalms. And so they say, well, <laughs> uh, since we've got this vacancy, let another take his place. And so they were trying to figure out who um, who was meant to take that place. And they came down to two names and then they couldn't decide. So they prayed and they basically cast lots and the lot fell on Matthias. Um, So he became the replacement for Judas uh, immediately after the crucifixion of Jesus and the suicide of Judas. Right. And the the Mm -hmm. premise underlying claromancy in the Greco-Roman world was the idea that uh, through chance or fortune um, that essentially like providence in some way will um, cause the lot to fall and whatever it picks will be what was supposed to be will be somehow correct the correct choice mm-hmm. that's somehow like divinely inspired, probably in that context by like providence or something like that. Exactly. There's a passage in the book of Proverbs in the Hebrew Bible that says, no matter how the lot comes out, it's God who is making it fall in a certain way, or something like that. That's a very bad paraphrase. <laughs> sure. But that that's certainly an idea that's uh, touched upon in the Hebrew Bible as well. Okay. Um mm-hmm. so Anyway, so going back, um, so in terms of the Old Testament Mesopotamian context, two primary issues are issues with potentially polytheism because the way that the planets are treated in the Babylonian or Mesopotamian tradition is as if they're manifestations of different gods that are sending messages to mankind, and that's already Mm going to run into some issues if you're starting to go in the direction of just focusing on one god, and then secondarily due to some of the political issues with astrology being part of the the power apparatus of the yes. ruling yeah. powers at the time that becomes an issue as well mhm very much so and that that point is something that carries over into the new testament period for sure okay um do you know any quotes are there any like old testament quotes that come to mind in particular about like anti-astrology ones that are worth mentioning within that context there are none that come to mind in terms of specific condemnations of the practice of astrology. Any quotations that come to mind immediately are not not as much criticisms of astrology, but criticisms of planetary gods. 
Um, so there is a passage in uh, Ezekiel where uh, the prophet decries the fall of Lucifer. And of course, in Greek, that word is phosphorus, which is the name for Venus, right? Um, so of course, right there, you take that uh that translation history of phosphorus to Lucifer to Morningstar to New Testament apocalyptic literature, and people start, you know, through a, an interpretive lineage to begin to associate Lucifer with Satan, right? So it's step to step to step, um, and that's how these ideas develop uh, within uh, Christian discourse over the ensuing centuries. Um, another one is. In the book of Amos, you may have to you may have to cut my flipping through the text here. Sure, um, I'm just like trying to glance through some different verses really quick. There's, of course, like all the astrologers love to cite the Genesis verse. Oh yeah, um, and, and God said, "Let there be lights in the expanse of the mm-hmm. heavens to separate the day from the night, and let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and for years." And so um, sometimes defenders of astrology will cite that and say, well, what kind of signs are the heavens supposed to be giving um, in that instance? Mm-hmm. Exactly. Uh, let's see. But other, most other things have to do with like anti-fortune telling. Leviticus, you shall not eat any flesh with the blood in it. You shall not interpret omens or tell fortunes. Mm-hmm. So right there we have more of a general prohibition against fortune telling, which I'm curious why that is from like a religious standpoint. Why why was like fortune telling prohibited or banned in any way in like this religion compared to let's say mainstream, like some of the polytheistic religions seem to you know, have divination as a cornerstone. So, for example, mm-hmm. I'm thinking of even like the Roman Empire, the early Roman Empire. They had like um, ornamancy or bird divination, mm-hmm. and that was mm-hmm. like one of the official like government roles. Was I think Caesar was like head of the College of Augurs, for example, at one point. Right. Well, again, that comes to the issue of bait. <laughs> which which divinity are you divining with, right? Um, mm-hmm. So when Israel was leaving Egypt and coming into Canaan, into Palestine, there were already many, many different extant cults there that had cultic practices like divination, like eating meat with the blood still in it, um, like temple prostitution. You know, it, there's an interesting parallel here to the way uh, you know we we can engage with maybe some of the Old Testament critiques of astrology. Whereas, you know, in other parts of my life, I've had to engage with very similar critiques of air quotes homosexuality in the Old Testament canon, even though that did not, that concept was not (laughs) a thing that was known to the ancient world, right? But I think on that point that you raised, especially there, why divination is especially uh, forbidden in the Levitical Code. It's not so much divination qua divination that's the problem. It is divination accessing the knowledge and the input of rival deities to Yahweh, right? Okay, um, and, and so, maybe we see echoes of this come mm-hmm. up later with the arguments about some of the later authors after the New Testament comes into play, saying, "Yeah, astrology is real, but it's work of demons or it's the work of the devil or something like exactly, that." Exactly, exactly. That's that's exactly where that comes from. Okay. So more yeah. arguments that perhaps it's a legitimate thing, but it's coming from either deities that are not sanctioned or from forces that are not not good. Yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. 
Mm-hmm. Okay. Did you find what you're looking for? I did not find what I was okay, looking for. Okay, that's fine. So to move this along, though, sure. so it's like that's that's sure. the Mesopotamian context, which especially the Old Testament mm-hmm. comes out of. But then there's a shift because astrology changes. By the first century BCE, mm-hmm. there's this confluence after the during the Hellenistic period of Mesopotamian astrology gets synthesized together with Egyptian astrology and merged with like Greco-Roman philosophy to create this new version of astrology, mm-hmm. this new synthesis called Hellenistic astrology. And by this time, natal astrology has become really popular, and it, it didn't seem to exist prior to about uh, the first birth charts that we have in the Mesopotamian tradition aren't dated until about 410 BCE. And then by the first century BC and CE, suddenly this concept of natal astrology is super popular and everybody's doing it, mm-hmm. and it becomes integrated into just the life in the Mediterranean world in general. And it's that concept that you can cast a chart for the alignment of the planets at the moment a person is born, and it will say something significant about possibly their future or their character or what have you. So mm-hmm. that's the context in which the New Testament is written. And that's a much different context compared to the Old Testament because now we're starting to get into some different philosophical debates about if you take natal astrology true as a premise, it means there's some things that might be predetermined in a person's life, and you start getting into issues mm-hmm. about fate and free will and and things like that. Right. Um, right. And and right away, this is already prominent. We can already see the shift in things in the nativity story in the Gospel of Matthew. Right. Mm-hmm. Yes, we can absolutely begin to see that. Um, I'm I'm going to put a pin in the nativity story real quick because I think okay. there there's an interesting, you know, I think that's one of the arguments for astrology from the New Testament that mm. I I find very compelling. Um, but essentially, what we have by the time we get to the New Testament era, and this would be about the first century, first we'll say the first to fourth centuries CE, there are essentially three. Primary classical arguments about that that argue that Christianity and astrology are not compatible. The first is, well, it doesn't work. It's not real. <laughs> astrology is fake, and that pagans had been doing that for years before Christianity even existed. So that's not really an exclusively Christian argument. That gets picked up by Christian writers in about the fourth and fifth centuries, um, and that becomes. You know, a de rigueur critique of astrology that we still have today from various corners, right? So and the- that's and and some of that is actually influenced where the mm-hmm. Christian authors would draw on earlier pagan attacks on astrology from, like, the philosopher Cicero from the first century mm-hmm. BCE, mm-hmm. or from the philosopher Sextus Empiricus, and some of their arguments are taken, which are just um, like pagan disp- disputations that astrology is even possible by invoking yeah. things like. Twins or later procession and other things like that. Mm-hmm. And then some of those arguments get sort of adapted or, or sort of not co opted, but sort of um, integrated into some of the later Christian disputations. Yes, yes, that's exactly right. Um, and, you know, I, th- I think that I think the point there is that um, those disputations are not. Really interesting theologically to me in terms of speaking of the history of Christianity and astrology as they are emerging um, in the Mediterranean basin in that period of history. So if we we take the astrology doesn't work, we'll take that argument, set it here <laughs> for now, and maybe it's there. 
Because the, the modern, other, modern analogy is like invoking like a scientific ar- argument today, exactly, and, and saying exactly. like a religious. Because that video actually we watched tonight, where I just pulled up some random YouTube video, and it was about it was a sort of modern contemporary Christian pastor who was saying mm-hmm. that astrology is not compatible with Christianity. And that was actually the first thing he did. Is the very first thing he did is he actually cited science, and he says science has not validated astrology, and says that astrology is not a real phenomenon. And that was his opening argument against astrology. And then after that, he went into theological arguments based on what the Bible says. But right. that's sort of the modern equivalent to what was happening in this first tier that you're mentioning mm-hmm. in the ancient world. Yeah. And as, a, as an adjunct comment to that, I'd be really interested to know what uh, he thinks about the age of the universe and all of those other considerations as well. Uh, because based Based on that video, it seemed like he was more of a conservative-leaning evangelical. Um, but yeah, you know. I mean, well, that's an issue in of itself, which is just you run into a problem if that's going to be your main or your opening mm-hmm. argument as mm-hmm. a Christian against astrology that science says it's not real because the Bible right. clearly treats astrology as if it's real most of the mm-hmm. time. For example, with the nativity story in the Gospel of Matthew right. and the Star of Bethlehem. Mm-hmm. And in other parts, it just treats it like it's real, but it's evil. But you've got a real issue there if the Bible itself is sort of treating astrology as if it's some sort of phenomenon that does exist. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Exactly, exactly. Which brings us to the other main thread of argument uh, against astrology within the Christian world in the uh, first centuries of Christianity, uh, which were namely that either fate is canceled or that the planets are demons. <laughs> You got two options there. So the first off is that this idea that fate is canceled. And out of this, out of the Stoic world, there are essentially two concepts of fate that emerge. The first is hemarmene, which is simply fate. This is what you got. Deal with it. Mm-hmm. And there's also pronoia. And pronoia is interesting because in English, we translate that word as providence, right? And often, uh, Christians even now will talk about divine providence. They'll talk about divine goodness that is guiding the universe forward into the future. And I think that you know can be an attractive theological posture for many people. Um, but because of providence being the actual guiding factor, that is something that exempts a Christian from astrological fatedness. Whereas hemarmene is something that we get exempted from by virtue of baptism in, in many of the early Christian arguments against astrology. Hemarmene is simply the idea of fate that is, is almost random, right? We have no, we have no way of choosing fate. So your chart is your hemarmene, right? It, it represents the, the lot that you have been given in this life and there's nothing you can do about it. Um, now, the, the astrology is the devil brand of criticism is actually almost a subset of the fate is canceled criticism. Okay. Um, and do you want to, can we, can we dwell on the like fate is canceled one or do you, are you just summarizing both of them really quickly and then we'll go back to that one? Um, hmm. Just because the fate is canceled one is such a huge discussion point. I want to make sure we talk about that for a little while. Right. Well, yeah. I think we get there with the, um, I think we get there with the it's the devil argument as well because okay. the the route that I'm going is uh, is essentially what um gosh what's her name I can't, I can't Denzi, remember her name. Denzi Nicola right. Denzi Lewis 
yeah, she identifies a fate as being a force that is administered by demons, right? So mm-hmm. I, th- I think these two arguments are actually one and the same. Um, d- just it de- there are various definitions of what fate is or what the nature of fate is. Yeah, so hmm, maybe we can. Where do you want to pick back up? <laughs> um, I just want to. So that's that became to me like a huge part theologically when you get into this that is like the big question mark for me and a lot of my mm-hmm. thoughts over the past decade have really been influenced by the work of this one scholar whose name is um it's different in different publications but it's it's Nicola Denzi Lewis or Nicola Francis Denzi but she wrote this amazing book and it was originally her PhD dissertation in like I think 1996 or 1998 but she later revised it and published it uh, through Brill, which is like an academic publisher. And the title is Cosmology and Fate in Gnosticism and Greco-Roman Antiquity. It came out in 2013. It's kind of an expensive book. It's like a $100 book, but it's such a good book and such a good treatment of the tensions between especially uh, astrology and Christianity in the ancient mm-hmm. world, but primarily through the lens of this issue of of fate and the role that it played in astrology and how that caused a lot of tensions with Christianity, mm-hmm. especially in the mm-hmm. first few centuries, both in some of what we consider to be like the standard mainstream treatments of Christianity, but also in some of the other ones like what's usually referred to as like Gnosticism and other mm-hmm. smaller sort of Christian cults that didn't end up being as successful in the long term. Yeah. Yeah. So um I, I love her book and I really recommend everybody read this, but it's influenced my thinking on this because um she does this sort of literature review where she objects to some of the ways that early earlier historians of religion have characterized um the emergence of Christianity in the Greco-Roman world and the role that fate and astrology played. And she tries to present a slightly alternate narrative and and I'm not sure if I go along with her narrative completely because I think mm. she ends up doing actually a really good job explaining how this theological issue surrounding fate became one of the primary things almost that Christians were that that made Christianity to me almost seem like appealing or or for the first time I felt like when I read her work and the way that she explained how Christian how Christian early Christian authors were trying to frame astrology and how they were trying to frame their own religion and their own beliefs and what was appealing about that is it seemed like they were trying to frame it as if the, one of the primary things was that being a Christian would free you from fate and would free you from mm-hmm. the influence of astrology which was seen as one and the same and, and sort of interchangeable and for the first time it made me really understand what the appeal of Christianity would have been and why it would have um risen so rapidly in the Greco-Roman world to become the dominant religion over the course of a few centuries. So and and I know that you object to that and you think it's more complicated than that and that's what I want to get into mm. and talk about. <laughs> but that was where this discussion yeah. came from. It was largely through reading her book as one of my primary sources but also understanding Hellenistic and Greco-Roman astrology as I do and how they approached it and what the mindset was, but also seeing with clients in, in modern times, as astrologers are reviving some of these older forms of astrology, you see people struggling with some of these questions about fate mm-hmm. and free will and, and what are the implications for my life and 
why does this timing technique work so well in like indicating the sequence of events in my life and what are the implications of that and do I have do I truly have free will and all this other stuff I think mm-hmm. there's something very relatable um seeing that happen now in modern times but then projecting it backwards into the first century and imagining what just like a normal person would have felt like if these mm-hmm. different views were in you know currency or current um, in the mainstream, especially in terms of astrology being the dominant paradigm, and this notion that major things in your life are predetermined based on your moment of birth, and then you have this new group that comes along and says, maybe they're not. Maybe you can get free of that if you do these specific things, and it will erase your birth chart. Hmm. That yeah. was a, those are some of the ideas. I realize that's a lot, but those are some of the hmm. ideas that I'd been wrestling with and thinking about in terms of this issue and. The role that Christianity played, possibly, or at least some part of the role that it played in the ancient world. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it seems like that the the summary of that angle is essentially the acknowledgement that astrology is a legitimate phenomenon. And when I say astrology is a legitimate phenomenon, what I mean is that there is a consensus view that individuals have a fate that is determined by astral influences at the moment of their birth. It doesn't necessarily mean that the act of reading a chart is in of itself the devil or something like that, right? Right. Um, I think- Or not even influences, because it it might not mm -hmm. even be influence. It could be like signs or whatever that the astrology itself is somehow indicating your predetermined like events in your life. Right, right, exactly. Denzi makes this really fascinating argument, and I think that she um, is not alone in making it for sure, but the way that she lays it out in chapter three of her book, um, when she speaks about Paul, uh, is very interesting. For those who do not know, Paul of Tarsus was a convert to Christianity who began as a Pharisee and had a very successful career as a teacher of Jewish law and as a persecutor of Christians in the early years of the existence of Christianity. And he went on to write a majority of the text of the New Testament. Um, Some of the books that bear his name, we are pretty sure that he wrote. The rest of them, mm, not so sure. (laughs) What's his Um, time, time frame? He would have been writing, oh gosh, I think his martyrdom was in. Looks like they're saying 64, 67 CE. I yeah, about there. I was, I was thinking 70 CE, but that would have been the destruction of the temple. And I can hear my seminary professors yelling at me from 12 years ago. Um- <laughs> and, and isn't that approximately? And so the other, the major. I'm blanking on the word, but the things of the New Testament, the major documents of the New Testament Mm -hmm. were written in the few decades roughly around there or just prior to that? Yes, the Gospels were written. um, So so the four Gospels, which are the accounts of Jesus's life, uh, were written beginning in about 50 CE. Uh, Mark is the earliest one that we have, and we are pretty sure that was based on another text um, or another couple of texts that were collated into one volume. The latest gospel is decidedly the gospel of John, uh, which has a completely different angle of approach than uh, Matthew, Mark, or Luke. Uh, Those three are called the synoptic gospels because they form, well, they essentially follow the same plot line, but John's is much different. It's organized theologically. And you can see in John's gospel quite a bit more engagement with this idea of fate and free will 
and you know where this where this idea of the influences of that the influences that make astrology work are themselves demonic influences it's not astrology itself that's the issue it's the influences that are the problem here so in those so the theory then it's like that those four gospels are written mm-hmm. A few decades after the events in mm-hmm. which they were supposed to be de- depicting theoretically mm-hmm. took place around mm-hmm. like the first century or first decade BC or maybe the first decade AD. Yeah, the the scholarly consensus for the date of the crucifixion of Jesus is 33 CE, and interestingly enough, 33 CE also includes one of the only times on record when the entire Thema Mundi is backwards. Every planet is in its detriment, uh, and it's in about February of 33 CE. And S.J. Anderson, who is an astrologer, uh, found that chart, and it's stuck out in my mind ever since uh, hearing about it because it's just absolutely fascinating. Um, but yes, uh, so the so the scholarly consensus is that Jesus's crucifixion is in 33 CE, and immediately the Christian movement after that begins to grow. It takes a little while for the engine to turn over and for it to become a a more widespread movement, but Paul of Tarsus is one of the main figures in creating what we know as Christianity today, Christian theology. And what's interesting about Paul is that he never actually met Jesus. He just had a couple of ecstatic experiences and met the people who knew Jesus. So every all of his experiences were third party, right? Okay. Um, so Paul, some Johnny come lately uh, <laughs> sh- shows up. <laughs> that's the only time I've ever heard Paul of Tarsus described as Johnny come lately. But that's right. exactly right. <laughs> okay, the first century. You know? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, so he's active in the middle of the first century CE. Okay, and, and you said he was originally like a lawyer who was a Jewish lawyer who was against the Christians, but then he has yes. a religious conversion experience, mm-hmm. and then he mm-hmm. becomes Christian. Yes, um, he has a religious experience, uh, which he he talks so much about in the Book of Acts. He like tells people three or four times, and this happened, and this happened, and now I'm the apostle to the Gentiles. Deal with it, um, and we just kind of let him. <laughs> okay, if you want to do this. Um, and so and so is is Paul and sorry for my ignorance on this, no, that's okay. but is Paul one of he's not considered one of the four synoptic gospels, uh, but it it does become um basically his his writings do eventually become part of the New Testament. Mm-hmm. His writings are primarily letters. Uh his well, they're all letters. Everything Paul left is epistolary literature which means that it is written to specific audiences with specific problems, with specific solutions. But those letters, primarily the letter to the church in Galatia, uh, is where we really see the core of Paul's cosmological pessimism, which articulates, you know, hey, you know, the world is kind of messed up and it's messed up because a bunch of incompetent demons are running it. <laughs> and those incompetent demons might be the planets, but he never actually says that the stoicheia or the elemental spirits of this world are actually meant to be understood as astrological influences. He just makes the claim that, hey, by the way, baptism is how you get out of this, right? R- right. And that's mm. the thing that I found the most subtle but compelling about one mm-hmm. of the chapters in Denzi Lewis's book is that she 
does a pretty good job, I feel, of drawing that out and saying that we're supposed to understand that if we're reading this in a first century context, when he's talking about some of these things that are acting as impress- oppressive influences on mm-hmm. human life on Earth at this time, that that we that a, a normal audience would have understood that at the time to be referring to the planets, right, right, exactly, exactly, and and that um and then that brings us to the baptism thing that mm-hmm. somehow baptism was said to give you a new birth, and when it mm-hmm. uses the term birth, it uses the term. Genesis, which mm-hmm. is, of course, if you look at astrological texts written in Greek in the first and second century, like Valens, when he refers to a birth chart, he calls it uh, Genesis, mm-hmm. uh, which means mm-hmm. nativity. So yeah. G- Genesis was also a, a technical term for your birth chart in the ancient world. So when some of these ancient Christian authors are saying you get a new uh, Genesis from you know being baptized. Part of the implication may have been like you're you're sort of getting a new birth chart in some sense. It part of the implication may have been that that is may a, have been okay. <laughs> that's that, a, that is that's as strongly as I'm as I'm willing to go on that one. But you will see technical terminology related to astrology peppered throughout, especially the Pauline corpus, but also in the Johannine literature. So the Gospel of John, as well as the three letters of John. And Chris, I got to tell you a story. When I went to UAC in 2018, I went to Demetra George's talks, one of her talks, and I went up to her and spoke afterwards and shared with her a little bit about my background. And I told her that, like, oh, I went to seminary and I know Greek. And she grabbed my hand and said, "Oh, thank you so much <laughs> for learning Greek and being able to, to to get into the New Testament because so much of the astrological jargon is in there, right?" Right. And I think Paul's letters, especially. Well, especially in Romans chapter eight, uh, so his letter to the church in Rome, there is this wonderful passage at the end of the chapter, and he's listing all of these things um, that have no power to separate us from the love of God. But um, the things that he lists, of course, are uh, death and life and angels and powers and all this, blah, blah, blah. But he also uses the words hypsoma. And bathos, so neither exaltation nor fall, <laughs> are able to uh, uh, separate us from the love of God. So you know you'd have to know astrology to really be able to get that sense from the text, which mm-hmm. is why my 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 take on this whole argument is that I certainly think that for educated Romans or educated. Uh, Hellenistic Jews who who know the jingo of astrology, um, that would land for them. But I'm not convinced that average Joe in the pew on Sunday morning is going to have the astrological background to know that hypsoma and bathos are <laughs> are technical astrological terms. Yeah, even I, if I they know. know about that. Yeah. I mean, it is an interesting though. Just the fact that it, it's the technical term for exaltation, mm-hmm. it's contrasted with the technical term for fall, which mm-hmm. is funny that that you know two thousand years <laughs> later, that's still some a technical term that we use today, and it's just sort yeah. of inserted in there. Mm-hmm. You do sort of wonder, and then of course we there's also like little obscure. I've read papers about little obscure Gnostic Christian sects, like the the Paradics, I think is what they're called. Oh, yeah. Where they did seem to incorporate some astrological terminology into their their theology and stuff in even more elaborate ways. Yes, yes, we do certainly have evidence of various 
Christian sects that use, uh, there was one, gosh, I can't remember the scholar's name at all. Um, I've got it somewhere in my email inbox, but <laughs> there's this wonderful research paper uh, exploring the use of the Thema Mundi as a catechetical tool uh, within a particular Christian sect. So we do know that there are Christians, there is evidence of Christian sects in the early centuries of Christianity for whom astrology was much more of a positive influence. And I think we even have that today in some esoteric Christian sects. Um, for example, the Rosicrucians, right? Um, who are uh, late 19th century, early 20th century, and, and they're still around and active today, uh, sect of esoteric Christianity who are really important in making astrology accessible in the early 20th century, right? Sure. Um, so it's, this is another situation, I think, in which the testimony is not unified at all. <laughs> so we really do have to pay attention to who is speaking and what their motivations for arguing for or against a given uh, perspective are in all of this. Yeah, and and two points really quick. One, <laughs> yeah, the Greek Greek thing is really cool, and I wish there was more astrologers that would go back to school to learn Greek or had that sort of background, or even Latin, or to a lesser extent Arabic or other ancient languages, because it comes in handy. But this is one of the areas where, because the Hellenistic texts, the surviving texts on like Greek astrology, were written. In the first century BCE through the seventh century CE, that's the same essentially type of Greek that the New mm -hmm. Testament is written in. So, when Demetra taught Greek at Kepler College when I was there uh, like a decade ago, for example, we used this book, The Basics of Biblical Greek by William Mounts, I believe is his name. Yep. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you got that one? Yeah, I've just, got that just, one on my shelf. <laughs> which is just amazing because so many of the technical terms that they use in the New Testament are also terms mm -hmm. that are used in the astrological text. So I always think mm -hmm. of, for example, when we translated this passage from Rhetorius, where he's talking about the 12 houses and the significations of the houses and the different planets that have their joys in the 12 houses, there's this one. Um, Sentence that when we, tra we translated it as students, it said, I don't know if it was a good translation, but this was the rough <laughs> translation. It says, And when the star of Mercury is present in the first place, he rejoices, since the breath of life comes into being through the word. And mm -hmm. the word, of course, the Greek word is logos, is tr what we're translating as word there. But there's just all mm -hmm. sort of little terminology there that comes up. In the New Testament, so you get this really interesting parallel when you have that background in um, Koine or New Testament Greek. Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. And and we can speak more to this later, but I think that that idea of logos um, as the ordering principle of the universe, I think that's that's my point of departure for a pro astrology <laughs> Christianity or, or 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 a bridge between the two worlds for sure. Okay. Mm -hmm. Um, and what was the previous thing that you were just talking about before the Greek digression? Because I wanted to make another point about that. I guess it was just one of the issues that comes up in some of the early authors, like the one that we were just talking about, mm -hmm. is I think I think Paul is some issues with the idea of the body and like physical incarnation, and this oh, not necessarily yeah. just being a thing that was restricted to Christianity, but we also see mm -hmm. coming up in some of the Gnostic sects and some of the even in hermeticism, is this real idea that when you're physically incarnated into the body, that that carries with it certain issues. 
and that it's when when you're in the body that the planets and that fate um, have real influence over that. And this led to some later distinctions, um, especially in like later you know attempts to reconcile astrology and Christianity between mm-hmm. saying, mm-hmm. well, the planets have influence over the body, but you have free will or your soul or your intellect is somehow free of that. And it seemed like already we have some of those debates starting to come up really early in some of these like first-ish century Christian texts in terms of their preoccupation with um, like the the body. Yeah, yeah. Body adversity or body aversity, not adversity. Body. <laughs> Let me try that again. Aversion to embodiment seems to be a really um, prevalent theme within. Hellenistic philosophy, for whatever reason, I haven't quite figured out in my own reading and research, but it was not a feature of Judaism. Mm. And I think that's one of the things that we absolutely have to keep in our back pocket when we're engaging in these conversations is that Christianity started as a Jewish sect, which was not afraid of embodiment, right? Okay. Um, That is something that, um, well, Paul's uh, Hellenistic priorities, right? Uh, and his interchange with Hellenistic philosophy imported a lot of body problems <laughs> into Christianity that were not necessarily endemic to the Judaism whence uh, whence Christianity emerged, right? So, how I would think- you summarize his like anti-body negativity? What are some um, of the features of that? Essentially, let's see. Or, I mean, I'm trying to think because I know I can talk about, in terms of the astrology, some of the negative implications of that where he. Hmm. It essentially emerges from his assertion that uh, the physical body itself is bound by law. And when Paul uses law, there are a couple of different things that he means. In some cases, he means the Jewish law, the Torah. But in other cases, he means the law as administered by celestial spirits, by astral entities, by planets and stars and other forms of creation, right? Mm -hmm. Um, So for Paul, his view is that, well, I think it can be argued that one possible view of Paul is that he views God and the experience of God as being separate from everything that is being administered within the realm of a law. And I think Denzi even goes so far as to suggest that for Paul, he is explicitly rejecting everything that smacks of law. Um, He's rejecting everything that has to do with the Jewish ritual law, which is very embodied and has to deal with bodies. He's rejecting everything that has to do with the law of fate, either uh, pronoia or hemomene, whichever definition of fate you're using that is administered by um, created things, by created beings. He is dispensing with everything having to do, everything that restricts essentially the human mind from experiencing God. And for Paul, that was the body. And for, for many other religious traditions, that also seems to be the body. But this becomes really challenging when we try to square that against the Jewish understanding of material creation as being fundamentally good, right? 
Uh, so if you go all the way back to the book of Genesis, God calls her, oh, that's good. That's good. That's good. That's good. That's very good. The whole thing's good from mm-hmm. the very beginning. And so there's this clear rift in this first century emergence of Christianity out of Judaism where we start to get confused about what is the body? What is the role of embodiment? What is the role of incarnation? And of course, as a result of that, we've got uh, 2,000 years of purity culture that we're still trying to untangle. And, and we've got you know all of this this body nonsense that humans, that Christians embroil themselves in, in terms of sexual shame, in terms of um, prudishness and, and toxicity and all of that. Um, so it, it goes <laughs> quite a bit farther beyond the astrological implications of embodiment here. So this is one of the sort of areas where some of the ideas surrounding like sexuality being negative in Christianity mm, yeah. some sort of stem from is from this occupation with um preoccupation with the body and like physical sensation and vices being negative things. Exactly, because those things are under the influence of uh the either inept or malevolent archons of this universe, of the cosmos, right? Right. And that reminds <laughs> me of there's that famous passage in the Corpus Hermeticum, the very first Corpus Hermeticum, mm-hmm. which is the most important one, where it talks about the soul um, descending through the planetary spheres into incarnation before you're born, and how it's picking up certain qualities and especially mm-hmm. certain vices from each of the planets. And then it's incarnated, um, but then you're born and you live your life and you're under the control of the planets and they have influence over you, especially through these different predispositions or character traits that they're influencing mm-hmm. in you. But then when you die, you ascend back through the planetary spheres and you give back these qualities to each of the planets. Hmm. So I would have to it's like that's part of the sort of cultural backdrop of some of those beliefs as well in terms of different vices that the planets might have control over or ways in mm-hmm. which they're influencing your physical body and physical sensations. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. Which reminds me, I think Lynn Bell is getting ready to do a webinar on the seven deadly sins and the seven cardinal virtues as related to the planets, which might be a really interesting dovetail with that point. <laughs> yeah, that is actually a very nice connection, actually, because mm-hmm. m- many astrologers have sort of noted that there may be some connection between mm-hmm. the seven traditional planetary bodies and the seven deadly sins. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's something that I've done some thinking with, and I don't have any solid opinions on, but it is a, a fun thought experiment when there are groups of seven <laughs> trying to line things up. Got it. So- mm-hmm. Um, back to this issue of yeah. sort of fate and how that's one of the things being attacked. It's just especially this idea of the body and physical incarnation being something that the planets have control over and that they have mm-hmm. control over the physical world. And that's one of the reasons why there might be arguments in some early Christian texts that maybe astrology is legitimate, but that it's not necessarily a good thing. And that right. takes us into the next part, which is the sort of it's a it's the devil argument. Yeah, essentially, the argument is that um, celestial beings, variously called stoicheia, elemental forces, archai, exousiae, or dinames, so uh, rulers, principalities, authorities, powers, all all these things uh, populate the cosmos. And these things, these beings appear to exert some form of contingent control over a significant portion of the human race through three specific means. They control vice, they control human behavior, and finally, they control law. And in the Pauline worldview, these these beings act in direct opposition to Christ, 
whom they, these beings, had crucified in their ignorance. Uh, that's a direct quote from Denzi, page 67 of her book. But essentially, uh, the argument here is that these powers see everything that's going on. And what Paul does interpretively is he takes the crucifixion of Jesus of Nazareth as the crucifixion of this political criminal. Um, and he bl- magnifies it and blows it up to this cosmic, <laughs> this cosmic thing, this cosmic reality where it's all of the powers that administer this realm, this mm-hmm. temporal world are the ones who, you know, who crucify Jesus, who crucify Christ. Um, and in that they prove themselves not to be paid attention to. They prove themselves not to have any ultimate authority because they, of course, all end up conquered uh, in the resurrection and ascension of Christ. That's Paul's essential argument. Now, the idea in that sense, and this is true of the epistles that we know that Paul wrote, his argument is that, well, Jesus is coming back really soon and he's going to finish fixing everything, right? So there's going to be this great conflagration and the world's going to be set aright and it'll all be fine and all these powers will finally be canceled. And you, as an individual person, if you get baptized into the faith of Jesus Christ, as preached by Paul, (laughs) um, you get exempted from this power because you participate in the cosmic crucifixion and death and resurrection of Christ. And therefore, Uh, through this kind of exchange, you are no longer subject to the law that these rulers, principalities, powers are administering within time and space. Now, I mean, that sounds oh, pretty appealing to me. I mean, and that's, does, my, yeah. that's my fundamental argument is that sounds really appealing. If some normal person who's hearing that off the street, mm-hmm. it's like you're using a lot of like technical terms and that's all going in one year and out the other. But what I'm hearing as a normal person is does that mean I'm no longer subject to like Mercury retrogrades? And right. I mean, if the answer is yes, then my answer is sign me up for that. <laughs> and true. And I feel like that's if that's even partially true, becomes a great selling point for not just Christianity, but some mm-hmm. of the other cults and some of the other religions that were offering sort of similar things, which is kind of like liberation from this broad like complication complicated cosmology that that mm-hmm. in some instances might feel very overbearing or very oppressive yeah yeah of course and i certainly think that it is a compelling argument my my the reason that i don't go all the way there i do think it was a compelling argument for some people i don't think it was the main thing driving the growth of christianity simply because if that were the main thing the escape from astrological predeterminism, I feel Mm -hmm. like the text would have specifically said that in more straightforward language than having these kind of elliptical references to uh, technical astrological terminology. And Paul never actually says that much in the text. He never suggests that it's specifically astrological influences that you are getting exempted from. He does suggest that you are no longer slaves to the powers and the uh, elemental rulers of this world, of this age. But what he means when he says that, scholarship is not clear on. <laughs> there are some people who do uh, you know, take the interpretation that he is speaking about astral influences, but there are other people who are saying that, you know, no, it's the other religious traditions of this world that you're no longer subject to. 
or the spiritual traditions of this world that you're no longer subject to. So I don't think the evidence, for me, the evidence is not satisfactory that that is the main thing that is being communicated here. But I, I do agree with you that that is probably a compelling argument to somebody who ended up in church on Sunday morning in 85 CE, right? <laughs> right. And, and whatever the like first century equivalent of like Mercury retrograde was and right, wanting to right. be free of that. Um, yeah, and that was the mm-hmm. point that we were going to debate about mm-hmm. that in terms of like me taking that side of the argument, and then you, because you feel like there's other things that were appealing to Christianity, mm-hmm. and we don't need to put it all on this like one thing of like getting free of a birth <laughs> birth chart or getting free of yeah. astrology. That yeah. Christianity had other good, like appealing mm-hmm. points to it that would have appealed to like a first century person. Right. I th- I think Christianity, you know, in addition to of course the freedom from astrological determinism. It was essentially at its core a revolutionary uh, community, right? A revolutionary community that was rooted in nonviolent resistance to imperial power. Um, for the very first few centuries of Christianity, you were not allowed to be a soldier and a Christian. Uh, if you had to wield lethal force as part of your job, you were not allowed to be baptized until you repudiated that job, until you left it. Uh, Christians gathered across lines of social status, of race, of class, of gender, of sex, of opportunity, rich and poor and sick. And, you know, all really it comes down to all the wrong people being brought into one room and completely equalized the rich with the poor, the able bodied with the impaired, the, uh, the, the foreigner with the citizen, right? Right. All so this the, like flattening of hierarchies oh, yeah. in some way. Oh yeah. Yeah. And or I think not non-hierarchical. Mm-hmm. It, it's very non-hierarchical. Of course there is a leadership hierarchy and we can talk about that and how that gets subsumed into the Roman uh, curse of uh, course of honors later on in the development of Christianity. But at least at the very beginning, these people are communists, right? They're holding all of their property in common. They're mm-hmm. selling everything they have. They're living in community with each other. They're giving their money to the poor. And they are. there's a really strong extra biblical uh, testimony to the fact that these people were working for social reform and for the social good. And I think that is just as much of a compelling reason to why you know, Joe on the corner would be interested in Christianity as much as the freedom from astrological fate angle is part of the attraction. Sure. Um, yeah. So Christians are like first century hippies, basically, is what you're, oh, what yeah. you're saying. Mm-hmm. Basically. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yes. <laughs> they are first century hippies. <laughs> um, and they were censured because they were crossing so many taboos. That was one of the reasons that they were um, that they were persecuted by the Roman Empire, of course, is because they're not afraid of death anymore. And if they're not afraid of death, that makes them very hard to control. Um, one of the taboos they regularly crossed was worshiping in graveyards because they had nowhere else to go. But part of the early Christian mythos was this idea of the defeat of the archon of death. If you want to talk archons, that's the big one <laughs> that Christians were celebrating victory over in those first centuries of the existence of Christianity. You know, um, was death because of the belief of life after death? 
Uh, no, it was the defeat of death and the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. It wasn't necessarily, oh, we die and we go to heaven and it's fine. It's like, no, death gets turned backwards. Death is canceled. Mm. Um, and life does continue after death, but there's also this really strong belief in the first centuries of Christianity in the literal body bodily resurrection. And Paul even talks about this. He talks about the transition of the body from being simply physical to something that as super physical, something that is completely unlike the bodies that we have now, but is both physical and spiritual. Oh, yeah, um, isn't that one of the like mm-hmm. things that astrologers sometimes cite is something about like an eclipse, but an astronomically impossible eclipse at the resurrection of Jesus, and that's almost like a citation or an instance of, or an allusion almost to n- nature being turned on its head in some way through the yep. resurre- resurrection. Yeah, it's more um, that that's really at the crucifixion. Uh, that okay, right. There would not have been an eclipse. I think that is common apocalyptic imagery. Actually, that's drawn straight out of the Hebrew Bible. But yeah, essentially, there is this sense of like nature itself being inverted in the crucifixion and resurrection, and that is actually what a lot of the hymnody of especially the Eastern Orthodox Church, but as well the Roman Catholic Church today tends to celebrate and land on in the celebration of Holy Week and Easter is that it's, you know, it's not as much about, you know, Jesus, oh, he died and we get to go to heaven and get our sin, (laughs) get out of hell free card punch. It's no, that Jesus actually canceled death by dying. So yeah, there's that whole tradition that I think is probably a bigger circle on the Venn diagram Mm -hmm. than getting out of astrological fate. (laughs) But I I think they are both valid attractors for sure. Sure. So maybe I should tone down the astrology (laughs) is basically the reason for Christian that Christianity took over in the ancient world and maybe Mm -hmm. adopt a more level-headed, like natural historical conclusion of there are many different factors and it was complicated. And this may have been one contributing factor of many. That's where I land, but you are welcome to land wherever you want, Chris. <laughs> okay, I will. I will keep. I will keep working on that. I'm not proselytizing. Um, sure. So <laughs> let me let's expand a little bit because we're almost finished with that part of sure the it's the devil argument because one of the ones that's really funny then historically is Saint Augustine who you know writes a few centuries later and he. Is interesting because he's one of the. If you try to do, and one of these days I want to do an episode on just ancient Roman critiques of astrology and attacks mm-hmm. on astrology, of which there's at least three or four major ones, which are Cicero, Sextus Empiricus, and then Saint Augustine. And, and Augustine is the latest, and his is the most interesting from a conceptual standpoint because he doesn't try to like dismiss and say that astrology isn't real. He says that it's real, but he just says that it's the work of the devil, essentially, or the work of demons, mm-hmm. and even says or tries to claim that he was a former astrologer himself, mm-hmm. which is really interesting in terms of his perspective that he's coming at the subject at. So did we touch on this idea about like diamonds and that being part of like the cultural context that was going on in this time period, that those were some of the Things that were operating in terms of the environment or the law that was seen to be somehow keeping the order in check. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, the whole idea of daimon is certainly subsumed into that first and second century critique of um, the natural order as it is. Um, 
where it's like yeah. there was belief, especially coming from like the Egyptian tradition, for example, of these intermediary spirits that are operating between the world of man and the mm-hmm. higher levels or the even mm-hmm. the planetary realms that the diamonds are like intermediaries and that there's like good ones and bad ones, but that sometimes in some of those different traditions, those are almost like the operative power through which the planets are exerting some sort of influence on um, yeah, yeah, that, and that that really is a, a a further articulation of what we had already touched on in terms of the law, um, mm-hmm. in terms of the powers and principalities that administer the law, um, that administer this kind of you know set of rules for existence in a temporal realm. Um, and and those, those are one of the things that John was like railing against then. That Paul was railing against, yes. Paul, okay. Mm-hmm. As part of the, it is the diamonds, but then mm-hmm. again, a first century audience would have understood that the diamonds are potentially under the control of or administered by the planets. So then it becomes, mm-hmm. again, potentially going back to this sort of broader astrological cosmology that's being taken into account. Um, and eventually, like the concept of the diamond gets turned into something that's almost entirely negative in Christianity. Although we sometimes see traces of like the positive version of that with like right. co- the concept of like angels as intermediaries, mm-hmm. right? Exactly, exactly. Um, within Christian theology, we have uh, this idea of non-corporeal intelligences or non-human intelligences. Um, angels and demons are both that kind, right? Uh, so the the closest thing that we have really to the, a daimon proper within Christianity is the idea of a guardian angel, um, which is this idea. And there's not a lot of uh, direct scriptural discussion of the idea of a guardian angel, but there is actually this lovely passage in uh, the Acts of the Apostles that describes a uh, a, a scenario in which Peter, who is one of the original 12 disciples, is imprisoned and he miraculously gets out of prison and people see him and they think, oh, that must be Peter's diamond. That must be his angel, right? That must be this spiritual representative that kind of looks like him, but we know it's not Peter because he was in jail, but it's actually Peter. (laughs) Uh, But there are also, of course, throughout the Acts of the Apostles, these kinds of angelic interactions that happen with non-embodied intelligences that um, are working for the good. They're working for the good guys, right? Um, so, So that is certainly something that has been part and parcel of Christian theology for quite some time. Um, of course, the word daimon gets calced into the English word demon, but daimon itself does not necessarily mean a, a spirit that is evil, qua evil, right? It just means right. it's just a word for non-human intelligence. Right, or like a spirit, a disembodied spirit mm-hmm. of some sort. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Exactly, exactly. Okay. Um, so, but that again becomes part of that broader, like cosmological stuff of like ideas that exist in the ancient world that are sometimes mm-hmm. like tied into astrology, and that sometimes are perhaps implied when when some of these early authors are talking about, you know, getting free of all of this like complex machinery that you're born into when you're born into physical inc- incarnation. Yeah, that's right. That's right. 
All right. Um, you said you wanted to circle back at some point to the nativity story in the Gospel of Matthew. Would this be a good time to touch on that? Yes, that would be a perfect time to touch on this because I think this is actually one of the arguments for astrology as one, as a legitimate phenomenon, and two, as something that is licit for Christians to involve themselves in. So essentially, the Gospel of Matthew has, of course, the Star of Bethlehem narrative. Now, the Gospel of Matthew is written to a Jewish audience. And we remember, of course, that at this point in history, Judea is occupied by Rome. And it's during the time of the Roman Emperor Caesar Augustus, right? Who, of course, legitimizes his right to rule to be the August Caesar by publishing his horoscope. And he puts the Capricorn emblem on his currency, right? So people are people know, oh, he's he's the emperor because the stars said so, right? Right. Because so we, we think like Capricorn is probably like his moon sign, or mm-hmm. some people have speculated, or maybe his rising sign. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Exactly right. And so we get this narrative in the beginning of Matthew's gospel that has everything to do with and, and really quickly, I hate to keep interrupting you, oh, but sure. to, to expand on that point, he published his horoscope because uh, he may have received predictions earlier that said that he would be eminent as a result of that as a result of his birth chart so that he felt like his birth chart and publishing it legitimized to some extent his reign, that this mm-hmm. was predetermined and that this chart and the alignment of the planets at the moment of my birth were very prominent and showed that this was meant to happen and I was meant to be the emperor of mm-hmm. the entire Roman Empire. Mm-hmm. So it was astrology yeah. was being yeah. used sometimes as a justification for authorities who are setting up, putting themselves forward. Because we we think in retrospect of Augustine as the first Roman Empire emperor as you know just you know that was always going to happen or something like that. But his his rise and reign was very precarious, and there's like lots right. of instances where that could have gone wrong or where he could have not pulled that off. Like him mm-hmm. pulling that off and turning a republic into a dictator, a democracy essentially into a dictatorship was quite a coup. And him using mm-hmm. astrology and publishing his birth chart was one of his means of. Propaganda and as of justifying, yeah. um, you know, his intentions to do that. Well, I do. I believe that Ju- um, Julius Caesar was the first of the emperors to rise into the dictatorship. But of course, uh, Caesar Augustus, as a successor, is still riding that, and his reign, of course, is also um, imperiled by virtue of the instability that accompanies him throughout his life. So he publishes his horoscope to legitimate his rule. Right. Mm -hmm. Right. So that brings us to Matthew's Gospel, which is written to a Jewish audience who is under the rule of Caesar Augustus and Caesar Augustus's successors, of course. One of the primary thematic ideas throughout Matthew's Gospel is the idea of the kingdom of heaven. And throughout Matthew's Gospel, the kingdom of heaven is set up as an alternative. To the empire of Rome, right? So there's this dichotomy between kingdom of heaven, kingdom of Rome, kingdom of heaven, kingdom of the world. You know, Jesus as a, a, a good, benevolent, kind, self-sacrificing uh, ruler, right? Versus Caesar Augustus as, of course, another one of these top of the pyramid figures. And so there is a really strong political case to be made for why the author of Matthew's gospel included the Magi narrative at the beginning of the uh, at the beginning of that gospel 
as a as a nod to the astrological legitimation of Jesus's position, right? So if you have these foreigners come into Judea and say, where is he that is born king of the Jews? For we have seen his star at its rising, at its Anatole, <laughs> uh, and we have come Again, to worship a technical him. Term, mm-hmm. Technical yeah, term from like, astrology. Mm-hmm. Exactly, exactly. We've seen his star and we've come to pay him homage. And Herod, of course, who is the puppet king of Judea, says, oh, really? <laughs> Tell me more. Uh, and of course, his plan is to you know get rid of the little twerp before he threatens his throne. Uh, so there is this really strong uh, political commentary within that astrological commentary that uh, should not be overlooked to anyone who is reading uh, Matthew's gospel for sure. Um, but the fact that the astrologers from the East are not condemned at all, uh, but in fact are the first people besides uh, shepherds and poor people and livestock who find Jesus, right? Are I think that's a really compelling. Um, that's a compelling tee up for what I mentioned earlier about the whole Christian movement inviting all the wrong kind of people to the table, right? So these were foreigners. These were people who had no responsibility either to Rome or to Judea, right? But they're showing up and they're using these quote unquote illicit arts to discover the truth. I, I feel like that's a really strong uh, justification for the fact that we can't just put astrology qua astrology in 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 the bad pile <laughs> if we're trying to figure out oh you know is this something that we um at, that we as as good church going folk uh should be involving ourselves in or not um yeah and so that that for me is my initial point of departure you know um here's this really strong narrative that serves a a powerful narrative purpose within Matthew's gospel. And these people are not condemned for what they're doing, but rather are celebrated as people who both find Jesus and pay homage and protect him by understanding that they need to get out of Dodge by way of a different road. Um, that's a, it's, it's something that makes you sit and think with that idea for some time, for sure. Yeah, I mean, either at the very least, like worst case scenario, if you were to take a purely historical and even like non believer standpoint, mm-hmm. we have this very early Christian writer, whoever wrote Matthew in the first century, who has this story at the very beginning of his work, which gives an astrological justification for you know, Jesus being like somebody who is really important mm-hmm. and using astrology and the concept of natal astrology front and center in order to legitimize that this guy is potentially like the son of God or or what mm-hmm. have you. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's like a almost like worst case scenario, you you at least have that as a justification. Um best case scenario, if you are like a believing Christian who thinks that this is describing an actual historical event, it means that there was some sort of Astronomical alignment um, at the birth of this person, mm-hmm. uh, at the birth of Christ, and that three astrologers, or it actually doesn't specify if it was three, but some group of astrologers from the East were literally led to mm-hmm. the birth of Jesus and showed up there right from the start and gave him gifts and then left and then actually avoided doing something negative to him, which mm-hmm. which the king at the time was attempting to. To lead them into accidentally, mm-hmm. 
Uh, yeah, so that's and finally, not just that, but one of the things I noticed when I was watching a recent objection is you have this issue with that story if you're a Christian of if that actually happened, that it implies that that wasn't like negative, you know, demons that were somehow involved in causing mm-hmm. the star of Bethlehem to appear. That instead is meant and, and comes off like it was some sort of divinely inspired omen. That showed up at that time that was indicating something good, and you really run into an issue there if you want mm-hmm. to attempt to portray that negatively somehow. And right. I know that like like later sort of Christian writers and a few centuries after Matthew, it's always funny seeing them like desperately trying to spin this <laughs> in like a negative way or make yeah. this look like it's not about astrology or the astrologers are not being sanctioned as the good guys basically mm-hmm. in this story, which they clearly come off as. And so they'll do funny things like read between the lines where it says that they avoided Herod by going a different alternative route to avoid him on the way out. And they'll say, well, this means that symbolically they gave up astrology afterwards and just like really like lame attempts to reinterpret the story like that. But, you know, that aside, it seems like a, a a story that both sanctions that astrology is real and paints the astrologers in a relatively positive light at the very beginning of. Uh, Jesus' story, essentially. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And I think that this is where this conversation as to whether astrology and Christianity are antithetical really comes down to me because I think that there, when we are, I'm going to speak to 2019 right now in light sure. of everything that we've said over the, the past uh, few minutes. Right. When we are trying to do the reconciliation between Christianity and astrology now, I don't think that we can necessarily just go back to Paul, right? Go back to this first century cosmology that Paul is articulating and take that wholesale and pop it right here in 2019, because that cosmology, I don't think, is as defensible today based on what we know scientifically, but also based on what we know in terms of expanding sense of um, integral reality. Um, Are you saying that we cannot take uh, every passage from the Bible and apply it literally in a modern 2019 context? <laughs> I am saying that. <laughs> All right. So, well, the- in case you needed to hear that from someone, you know, with some skin in the game, no, you do not have to, <laughs> to apply the Bible literally to anything, really. Um, All right. Well, that's a little controversial, but I'll go along with you there up to this right, point just for the right. sake of argument. Oh, of course, of course. And, but here's the thing too, and this is this is my criticism of Paul's cosmology and his whole argument that uh, that baptism exempts you from astrology. Baptized people with no knowledge of nor any interest in astrology still end up living out their charts. We've got lots of Pope charts <laughs> where this is uh, where this is. Uh, a great example and a couple of saint charts as well, because you know, these are the kinds of charts that I collect. I think a great one is Oscar Romero, who has uh, Mars in Cancer directly on the ascendant. Um, and he, I believe, has the moon in Sagittarius in the sixth house. Of course, Oscar Romero is a famous, he's a saint now, um, and he was a martyr during the Salvadoran Civil War um, for. Uh, essentially speaking up for the people who were the victims of violence, Mars and Cancer on the Ascendant with the Moon and Sagittarius, right? He was actually shot and killed while he was celebrating Mass. 
um, by an assassin. Uh, and he made his entire stand on defending the poor, defending the people who had become victims of the violence in El Salvador. And that, like those two placements in that chart, I can draw the entire chart out of, right? And draw that entire narrative out of. But of course, he's a baptized person who's now a saint of the church who is living out his chart, right? So I, I think that Paul's suggestion that, or Paul's tentative or possible suggestion that baptism exempts you from your astrologically predetermined fate, I don't think it holds water in evidence. And I, I feel like we could uh, spend a lot of time looking at the charts of religious people who have been baptized and who have instead of being exempted from their fate, have lived into the hand that they have been dealt with consciousness and openness and a sense of um, the divine at work in all aspects of their life. I think for me, that's where I land. And I also land on um, this idea, which also comes from uh, the Pauline corpus, but especially the uh, Deuteropauline corpus, so Ephesians and Colossians, where uh, Christ is actively at work redeeming the world and redeeming the whole thing, not just humans, not just getting humans into heaven, but rather bringing healing and wholeness to the entire world, to all of existence, to all levels and degrees and natures of existence, which would necessarily include the planets which would necessarily include all aspects of the cosmos. And if you were to press me theologically, that's what I would lean on, uh, this idea of the entire restoration of the world so that the planets can take their right place once again uh, as indicators of time, and they can correlate instead of cause, and they can offer guidance that is helpful and, and offer a window into um, the intentions of God for the world. I don't know. <laughs> it sounds kind of schmarmy and romantic when I say it like that, but that is, I mean, that's where I land. And that's, that's where I start my reconciliatory process for sure. Sure. And, and also as a Christian, but also an astrologer, one of your other positions is that even though you think astrology continues to work, even for those that have been baptized, when you say work, you still think and strongly believe and in terms of your practice, you do not believe in a complete determinism or that things are, are completely predetermined or that there's nothing you can do about it, but then instead that you have a certain amount of room and like negotiability and things like that as well. That's another big component in terms of your philosophy and theology, right? I do. I do. I do believe that you have the ability to work within the constraints that you've been given. Whether those constraints are astrological or whether they are entirely mundane, I do believe that you have the responsibility to use what you've been given to your utmost to um, live life with as much virtue and as ethically as possible. Um, and, I, and I think that this is where one of the spaces I land where I, I honestly believe that Christianity and astrology can serve each other because if you know what your chart says <laughs> and if you've if you have been growing in a tradition that cultivates virtue and cultivates ethical action and cultivates responsibility for what you are doing in the world, you can merge those two together really nicely <laughs> sure. so that you are working to live out your chart in a way that, you know, say you've got Mars and Capricorn in the 10th house, you know, uh, you know, you're going to drive really hard at work. So what direction are you going to use that energy to drive in? Right. 
this is a very simple example, but what direction are you going to use that energy to drive in? Are you going to run over people? Or are you going to use that power to lead, to build other people up, to, gosh, treat other people the way they want to be treated? <laughs> do unto others as you would have them do unto you, right? Mm-hmm. And for me, for me, that's where it comes down. And for me, Christianity, as much as it is a mystical tradition, for sure, is also an ethical tradition. Um, and that's that's where my concern lies, right? Uh, so we can certainly do a lot of speculation about the origins of astrology. We can do all of that. But for me, like, okay, how how is that impacting the choices that you're making in everyday life? That's always my question. It always comes down to okay, so what? (laughs) How does that impact how you live in this world? How does that impact how you participate in the healing of the world that you as a Christian or or you as just a human being, right? You don't even have to be Christian to do this uh, or or have the opportunity to participate in. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. (laughs) And it seems like we're also getting here to one of the common thing that comes up with Religions, in terms of, um, you know, are you trying to focus on the the spirit and especially like the, some of the ethical considerations mm-hmm. in the texts that, that come from the religion that then are put into use as like um, principles in your life or guiding principles to help improve your life and make you a better person, or are you focusing on, you know, this like line by line quotation of you know, individual sentences from texts from like the seventh century through the first century that you're going to attempt very difficultly to apply very literally and to reconcile in your life, even though they're often conflicting and not consistent. And, you know, there's not necessarily any way that any one person can follow all of those strictly to the letter necessarily. Mm -hmm. But that difference between like a literal interpretation versus following sort of the spirit of something in some sense. Yeah, I think that to attempt a literal interpretation of any sacred text does violence to the text, speaking quite frankly, um, because there are things in the Old Testament, especially that were never meant to be taken literally. But we have people who, you know, insist that the earth is flat and only 6,000 years old. Right. right. Okay. <laughs> but those, so much of that was in the sense of poetry, and it was written not as a scientific document, but as a theological document. Right. I'm speaking, of course, here of the Genesis creation narratives and other other allusions to um, Earth having corners. <laughs> right. No, no, no. For me, the the emphasis truly is on the formation of virtue um, and the participation in the divine life that in my own practice of Christianity emerges from um, participation in the sacraments and participation in the worshiping community. But I also, I also happen to be a universalist, which means, uh, you know, everybody's in, but everybody's in because there is this thing that is bigger than Christianity uh, drawing all of us together in a community of love and healing that is taking a really long time to work out, but the universe is headed that way. <laughs> and I do believe that. And I believe that same thing that's drawing the universe forward into the future is crafting the narratives that the planets represent that we have in our charts that we get to work in consonance and harmony with instead of feeling like we have to be enslaved to them. Right. Mm, right. 
Yeah, I mean, um, <laughs> one of the big things that that comes up for me, like for example, in reviewing some of the like videos on YouTube that are out there, like the one I, I watched earlier tonight, was mm -hmm. there seemed one of the, the most fundamental arguments I, I feel like I would make to anybody that was trying to argue against astrology from a Christian standpoint would be, you know, if God created the planets and the stars, and if in any way it's true that they're uh, sending messages or capable of conveying information about individual human lives that are sort of like emanating from the planets and the stars, however you want to define that, how would that not be uh, coming from the divine in some sense? Right. I think that's one right. of the arguments that I would make mm -hmm. is that if you want to argue that, that 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 they were created in that way, unless you want to say that the planets themselves are evil, you'd almost have to start making a very negative cosmology about how the cosmology of the planets and everything else or nature is itself evil in order to pull off exactly. not sort of attributing that to God. Which is antithetical to the Orthodox Christian articulation of the nature of nature, right? Which is right. essentially that nature is good, right? Create the created world is good. And I think this brings me to, you know, the the ultimate theological task that I'm trying to figure out in my work, and I don't have the answer to it yet, but this is this is the project I'm working on. If astrology works, which it demonstrably does, and Paul's cosmology is wrong, namely that the material world is evil, uh, which it is, uh, with a couple of other things that Paul said, because there's a lot of Paul that come on, we can just when you say it <laughs> when you say it is, you say that you mean that is Paul's cosmology that it is evil, that Paul's cosmology is incorrect, that the world is not evil, right? That the created world is not evil. Mm -hmm. um, then Christians and and people of faith in general, whether or not they're Christians, need to engage in a new theological task to figure out what's happening here and not satisfy ourselves with the first century um, cosmic pessimism that Paul seems to articulate, right? Sure. Um, where I have really found a lot of exciting possible roads have been in both historic and contemporary articulations of an integral worldview um, that acknowledges the unity of the spiritual and the material and the fundamental goodness of both. So we get a lot of that out of the Franciscan tradition vis-a-vis uh, -vis Duns Scotus and the ensuing scholastic tradition with people like um, Thomas Aquinas and Albert the Great. Uh, we also get this wonderful articulation from Pseudo-Dionysius in the 5th and 6th century CE of the idea of everything in creation participating in the divine life, the life of God according to its nature, from everything from planets down to plants <laughs> and everything in between. Um, and then there's, of course, this, this tradition from the scholastic era, as I mentioned before, that the stars correlate, but they do not compel, and that they are administrators of divine will and they are not evil, right? Um, and that prediction is possible by way of conjecture, not by way of actually knowing the future. That would be what Aquinas argues. But I think what is most interesting to me, and this is this is a thread that I really want to chase, are, are some of the avant-garde theologies of the 20th and 21st century, one of which is the idea of emergence theology. Emergence theology essentially posits that divinity emerges from the the uh, the the synergistic operation of systems, right? So 
Uh, if we think of uh, a human body, you can't reduce it down to an individual system, right? The, like the brain doesn't work without the rest of the body. So God does not work without the rest of creation, <laughs> right? And that's something to really sit with. But I think that there's a thread that we can kind of tug on there, or at least a thing that we can play with, an idea that we can play with is that perhaps hu conscious human interaction with observation of astral phenomena actually generates astrological phenomena. So that's an idea I'm playing with. I haven't really landed on that. Don't send me emails about it yet. <laughs> but that is a line of inquiry that I'm, I'm, I'm starting to think about and play with uh, quite a bit right now. Sure. Um, mm -hmm. And it's interesting when you're talking about that in terms of the, the first century preoccupation, the question about whether nature is ultimately good or whether it is ultimately bad because of the negative associations with like physical incarnation. Mm -hmm. uh, it almost made me and and the question of whether we're going to import those first century sort of negative views on the physical body and physical incarnation into modern times. It actually mm -hmm. makes me think of some of the modern debates debates surrounding like even environmentalism and questions mm -hmm. about like how are you treating how are we treating the planet? Are we treating this exactly it like this this thing that's um important that we're supposed to preserve. And there's some mm -hmm. like Christian groups who have gone in like an environmentalist route in thinking that taking care of the earth and whatever that means is in some ways like part of your duty yes, in order to yeah. like preserve uh, God's mm -hmm. creation versus mm -hmm. others that sometimes think that you know the the rapture is coming or it's like our time is limited here anyways and so there's no reason to really take care of this because we don't want to be here in the first place and our first goal is just like to get out of dodge as soon as possible so there's no right. real reason to sort of take care of it when we don't value it so much as we value the afterlife or what have you and i will say right now that that idea that you have just articulated is one of the most insidious ideas that has ever been generated through Christian theology is the idea that we do not have a responsibility to take care of the earth because that is a clear um, that's a that's a clear repudiation of the entire witness of uh, the scriptural canon and it's also you know creating manifest evil in the lives of people who are suffering the effects of climate change. I'm, I'm not trying to get off onto this tangent but like man I really feel some feelings about that <laughs> sure um, but yeah you know the if we go back to a kind of cosmic pessimism, of course we're not going to care about the environment. Of course we're not going to care about the people who are lost in their wickedness and their sinfulness, right? Because right. it's about getting our ticket to heaven punched. And as long as we get in, we'll be fine, mm -hmm. right? Um, so yeah, the return to a, a kind of Pauline or pseudo-Pauline cosmic pessimism is not a good solution for engaging in this conversation, I think. But I think it is a really interesting way to start talking about how Christianity has some of these challenging things kind of lingering down at its roots, and we really do need to examine them and examine how those ideas make themselves manifest today in uh, the social and political discourse in societies that have been really formed by especially Western Christianity. Um, yeah. Yeah, what's well, interesting just that those threads and some of those views and the tension between those views just goes back so far in mm -hmm. some basic theological debates in in the religion and then it manifested 
in that way back in the day in the first century and was in the context mm-hmm. of things like astrology and the planets. But then in right. modern times, you can see echoes of that coming out in like those right. two different views. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. I think I think the astrology and law debate is just a symptom of that kind of impulse that we see in the first and second centuries CE. Now it's about the environment, you know, <laughs> what's happening right here on the surface of this planet, <laughs> much less those. <laughs> sure. Right. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Um, are there any other things that we meant to touch on in terms of our outline that we did not get a chance to touch on? I mean, I think the ultimate what is the answer to our question? If our title, if our title is still, is astrology antithetical to Christianity? Um, my answer is no. Um, your answer is no. Okay. Based on my Christianity, my answer is no. Um, I don't think that Saint Paul would uh, would argue the same. But I think that is something that. Each but you think that Matthew might? You say like I think Matthew. That Matthew might. I think that he might, and I and I think that he would be in the good company of Christians throughout the. Uh, two millennia of Christian history who have seen astrology not as something to be feared, not as something to be banished, not as something to be ex- um, extricated from society, but as something that can be a tool for cultivating virtue and a tool for serving people, right? And that's where I land. It's nothing more than a platform agnostic tool, right? Um, because yeah, it is that- a legitimate phenomenon and it's part of our natural world. Sure, and that's probably the most important argument that you could make. That mm-hmm. is, the question is: Is it a legitimate phenomenon? And if you research astrology enough, and you don't just take it at the surface mm-hmm. level of like sun signs, if you actually look into astrology, <laughs> you're often will be people are often surprised at what they find. That this yeah. thing that you know, by all rational means, let's just be honest, should not be a legitimate phenomenon. Mm-hmm. But for some reason, like it is, and for some reason it works, and for some reason there's a correlation between. Celestial movements and earthly events. So it's like if you sort of accept that, that it's a a phenomenon that seems to be occurring out there, then point two is that it's a natural phenomenon that's happening Mm -hmm. in the cosmos. And so your second question is going to be then is that something that was created, uh, sort of divinely created, or is that something that you're going to attribute to negative or sort of malevolent uh, energies of some sort? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And you're going to have a I feel like a harder time doing that, arguing that it's negative or malevolent. But um, yeah, that's a pretty good, I think, ultimate fundamental argument to make. In addition to what you said earlier, which is there's just been countless prominent Christians in all Mm -hmm. walks of life who have incorporated astrology or used astrology or justified astrology over the past two thousand years, which includes uh, popes, which Mm -hmm. includes you know philosophers like Thomas Aquinas, which includes famous scientists like Galileo or Kepler. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, you can just go down the list of mm-hmm. people who have been Christians that have incorporated astrology into the, their lives in positive ways. Yeah. And just regular folk like me <laughs> and like many people that I know who are just using the wisdom of what's available to do the best they can to navigate this life. And that's what it comes down to. Sure. So the answer then is no, astrology is not necessarily antithetical to Christianity, and there are mm-hmm. ways to integrate astrology and still be and, and still consider yourself a Christian and still mm-hmm. practice um, you know, Christianity in an authentic way while still incorporating this other information into it somehow. Yes. 
Yes. Brilliant. All right. Well, that might be a good point to come to as we wind down. Thanks a lot for joining me tonight for this discussion. Thank you so much for having me, Chris. This has been an absolute blast. I've had so much fun. Yeah, we have covered quite a bit of ground, (laughs) and I'm sure we could keep going for another few hours, but maybe we'll Mm -hmm. save the rest for a part two or a part three. Yeah. Um, So tell me a little bit about your work because you actually, I want to mention first, even though it's not the most pressing thing, but you actually have a podcast that you've been doing Mm -hmm. over the course of the past year that's very relevant to this discussion to some extent, right? Yes, I am the host of the podcast entitled Jailbreak the Sacred, which you can find on iTunes and Google Podcasts, and you can also find at jailbreakthesacred.com. And essentially, it's an opportunity for me to sit down and speak with all my spooky friends. <laughs> but we have conversations about you know the process of finding a spirituality and a religious practice that uh, cultivates the best of the traditions we inherit and also uh, provides us with an opportunity to reevaluate and deconstruct uh, maybe more toxic theologies or toxic ideas that we've inherited, but find a way to be an aware, a growing, and ethical person um, all the same. Uh, So that's a really, it's just been an absolute blast to have uh, the folks I've had on. So we just finished, uh, we, I just finished season one, um, and we'll pick up with season two and the first of the year, but all of the episodes are available on the website or on either of the platforms I already mentioned. And I definitely invite anyone to go and listen to those. I've got quite a few astrologers, a couple of priests, a couple of, uh, just folk who are just working in the world. And it's, those are absolutely wonderful conversations. Brilliant. Yeah, I love that you're doing it. I love the podcast. Um, so people should look that up on jailbreakthesacred.com or just search mm-hmm. in whatever your po- your podcast app is for that title and it'll, it'll come up. You're, you actually have a couple books coming out, right? I do. Um, so I've got one coming out late November entitled Charted Territory, and that is part memoir, part instruction guide to traditional astrology. Uh, it's framed as uh, essentially how I figured out what the heck I was supposed to do with my life using traditional astrology. And it, so the first part is a memoir. The second part is an introductory text to uh, the basics of traditional chart delineation. So that'll be available on Amazon and probably some other outlets on the 24th of November, if everything goes according to plan. The other book I have coming out will be out on January 7th, and that is part of a series put together by Sterling Books on each of the 12 zodiac signs. And I have written the book on Sagittarius because I have a Sagittarius stellium and a Sagittarius mom. So (laughs) uh, I I got to uh, write quite a bit about that. So that was a fun project to work on. And I'm very excited for uh, all the other authors who have books coming out in that series as well. They'll all be available on January 7th. Yeah, I love that because now in the future, you know, at conferences, if if it comes up, you can say you can say, "Look, pal, I literally wrote the book on Sagittarius." Literally wrote the book on Sagittarius, and I should probably, <laughs> I should have put in in the in the forward that uh, at Norwalk this last year, Lynn Bell said I was Jupiter incarnate. So I, <laughs> okay. I feel like I know something about Sagittarius. <laughs> yeah, that should definitely be on the back cover, <laughs> or at least on like my resume or something. Right. Um, awesome. And you also are teaching uh, Latin classes mm-hmm. uh, to astrologers and occultists at this point? Mm-hmm. Yes. Uh, the first section of Latin for occultists 
<laughs> starts the first week of November. So if you're interested in signing up for that, it's essentially a two semester course of college level Latin. We will take you from not knowing how to read it or pronounce it to being able to read things in Latin over the course of about 40 weeks. Um, this is an incredible opportunity if you've always wanted to study Latin and have not had an opportunity so to do. Um, I've been using Latin day in and day out ever since high school, so I know the language and I'm really excited to teach folks. Uh, so if you want more information on that, there's a syllabus and there's a link to make a deposit and reserve your spot um, at soulfriendastrology.com slash Latin. Awesome. And that's such a great skill to have because if it's like if you know Latin, all of a sudden you can read just this huge library of astrological texts that have been written from the first mm -hmm. century CE all the way through like the 17th or 18th century that you just in some instances can't read. Like there's texts that we don't have translations of that you just literally cannot read unless you know Latin at this point. Mm -hmm. So having any lang ancient language like that really is a it gives you a leg up in terms of your astrological studies in some instances. Mm -hmm. It also just helps you think more clearly, really. Mm. It, it has it has some bleed through effects on other areas of cognition and life. So even if you have no interest in reading astrological texts in the original Latin, it's still good to know Latin. You'll get a higher score on your SATs. <laughs> sure, yeah, definitely. Um, and you also do uh, your practicing astrology, mm -hmm. and you mm -hmm. offer consultations and other things through your website. I do. I offer consultations, uh, natal, electional, pretty much everything. I don't do a lot of synastry. Um, my specialty is, as I mentioned before, classical horary technique, but I do offer natal consultations. And within this realm of natal consultations, my specialty is on vocational discernment. So the astrology of vocation and career and calling. That is that's where my heart is. That's what I love doing, helping people figure out what they're supposed to do so they can do it on purpose. Um, so you can find out more information about me and all of my consulting offerings at soulfriendastrology.com. And you can also connect with me on Twitter at Ryan Craddock, which is spelled Caradog, C-A-R-A-D-O-G. Um, Ryan is spelled R-Y-A-N, Caradog. Uh, that's on Twitter. And you've probably seen me if you've seen the Corgi photos. People come for the Corgi photos and they stay for the astrology. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I definitely follow the corgi photos uh, primar primarily, but then secondarily, your your brilliant astrological insights and other things. Mm, thank you. <laughs> All right, cool. Well, people can yeah. find your website at soulfriendastrology.com. dot com. Um, mm -hmm. But yeah, keep up. You've you've come into the astrological community over the past few years with it. Just seems like and taken it by storm. So I just wanted to say. Hmm. Uh, good job, and um, thanks for Thank you. joining me today. And, and keep up yeah. the good work because I appreciate everything you're doing and everything you're bringing into the field. Thank you so much for having me, Chris. This has been an absolute pleasure, and I'm so glad I get to um, contribute to the community and to the field in this way. Brilliant. All right. Well, uh, thanks for joining me. Thanks everyone for listening to this episode of the Astrology Podcast. And uh, that's it. So we're signing off, and we'll see you next time. See ya. Thanks to the patrons who helped to support the production of this episode of the Astrology Podcast, including in particular patrons Christine Stone, the AstroGold Astrology app available at astrogold.io, the Portland School of Astrology at portlandastrology.org, and the Honeycomb Collective Personal Astrological Almanacs available at honeycomb.co.